Hello, this is Aaron Wilder with the Marion University Writing Center, and you are listening to On the Same Page. Today we're going to be talking about grammar, and I know that sounds really boring, but I really hope that I'm going to make it exciting for you. There's going to be talk about battles and murder and hacking people to bits and burying them in an unmarked grave, because believe it or not, those are actually words that people use to describe their emotional reactions to what they describe as bad grammar. Some examples from popular journalistic organizations. Poor grammar is an epidemic in the workplace, says Cheryl Connor in Forbes. While I beat the drum in staff meetings, I had pretty much come to accept that terrible grammar and writing is an aspect of the millennial workforce I would just simply have to accept and endure. Another. When Karen Berg told colleagues at a recent staff meeting, there's new people you should meet. Her boss, Dan Silver, broke in says Ms. Berg, a senior vice president at Fort Lauderdale, Florida, marketing and crisis communications company. I cringe every time I hear people misuse is for are, Mr. Silver says. The company's chief operations officer, Mr. Silver, also hammers interns to stop peppering sentences with like. For years, he imposed a 25 cent fine on new hires for each offense. I am losing the battle, he says battle. The battle. Kyle Lines has perhaps the most to say about grammar in the workplace. He says that he has a, quote, zero tolerance approach to grammar mistakes that make people look, he says, stupid. So he also says that his partner Tuss and he disagree on what it means to have a zero tolerance policy. He says that she thinks that people who mix up their itses, so that's um, it's with an apostrophe versus it's without an apostrophe, the possessive versus non-possessive, deserve to be struck by lightning, hacked up on the spot, and buried in an unmarked grave. Uh, of course, uh, Mr. Wines just thinks that they deserve to be passed over for a job, even if they are otherwise qualified for the position. The The last one we're going to talk about um, is in an article uh, by someone named Mac Max Planck uh, for the website Mike. In an interview with Dr. Sanam Hafiz, a neuropsychologist and school psychologist based in New York, Dr. Hafiz says, I get really annoyed when someone writes up an email for me to review and it's poorly written or edited. It implies this person doesn't respect me enough because I've pointed out the problem before, or they don't care about my authority. That might make you actually angry, not just aggravated. Now, so these are all interesting and like super emotional responses to pretty benign grammatical instructions. Like, does anyone really not get it when someone uses you is the best rather than you are the best? And why the heck are they all so angry? I mean, personally, I don't think there is any gram grammar issue I'd murder over, uh, but maybe I'm just not as committed as, as these people are. I don't know. Um, but so I wanna, really want to hone in on one of these particular responses um, because it's, I think, really instructive. Um, Dr. Hafiz says that he believes the reason people are using what he calls poor grammar in their writing to him is because this person doesn't respect me enough or they don't care about my authority. And something you'll notice is that all of these examples, which are in very, you know, well-read and respected newspapers in, um, and websites, um, they're all employees looking down on their empl employers, looking down on their employees. So to them, certain types of 
quote, bad grammar are a challenge to their authority. But like, why? That seems ridiculous, doesn't it? How can writing thank you for your time with an apostrophe R-E instead of just a regular R be a challenge to somebody's authority? Well, I mean, the truth is it isn't, but they certainly feel it that way. And with some sociolinguistic evidence, we can start to discover why. For that, we can look into two articles that sort of examine the commonplace assumptions versus the actual linguistic evidence. So first we have Richard Hartwell's Grammar, Grammars and the Teaching of Grammar, and Laura Greenfield's The Standard English Fairy Tale, a rhetorical analysis of racist pedagogies and commonplace assumptions about language diversity. So you know what that means. We're going to dive into the academy, but uh, bear with me. If you're not here for that kind of ride, it's just important to get where we're going. Um, we will start with Hartwell. So Hartwell looks into the teaching of grammar or the focus on grammar in writing to determine, does it even work? Well, no. I'm not going to get into the weeds about this because it's not really our focus today. But while there is some dispute about this, most of the evidence tells us that focusing on grammar in writing doesn't actually even work to improve grammar in writing. More importantly, this lack of effectiveness stems from a really key issue that many of these grammar police who want people struck by lightning and hacked up into bits and burned in an unmarked grave almost certainly haven't examined. So, like, what the heck do we really mean when we say grammar anyhow? Well, we're going to examine it because it's really important, as it turns out. Um, it's a really big deal for trying to understand our topic. Hartwell identifies not one, but five. Yes, five distinct types of grammar. So that's five grammars. He quotes W. Francis Nelson, who did work in linguistics all the way back in 1954. So 1954. Like, we've, we've had this evidence since 1954, and we're still having this, this discussion. But we've identified the first three types of grammar back in, all the way back in 1954. So grammar one are the formal patterns in which the words of a language are arranged to create greater meaning. So this is something we, we don't consciously do. You don't have to figure out where your verb goes in every single sentence. You don't have to decide whether it goes before the noun or after the noun. Um, it just sort of happens. Like as I'm, as I'm talking to you guys right now, I'm just putting sentences together. Um, it's just happening. It isn't good. It isn't bad. It just is. So grammar two, on the other hand, is the branch of linguistic science, which is concerned with the description, analysis, and formalization of formal language patterns. So I want you to remember that word description because it's going to be important. But for now, um, all we're going to talk about is the fact that what we're doing is observing and reporting what's happening in language. So that, that happening, that language that just is, we are observing and reporting on that language in some kind of systematic way. So that's what linguists do, right? So then we come to grammar three. Grammar three is what we call linguistic etiquette. So this is where we get into the type of grammar that our examples above are using. They probably don't even know it, but the, what they are primarily concerned about is what we can describe as, is about sort of determining what we can describe as bad. So it's about categorizing a thing. It's not so much about what is or is not real grammar, like what, what is or is not grammatical. It's much more about how 
and what can we categorize. More on this later. But then we get to school grammar. That's grammar four. So according to Nelson, um, grammar two is sometimes inaccurately or misleadingly taught. That leads to a kind of like faulty notion of what like real grammar is. So we have those, you know, that, that grammar police kind of thing. They're actually not even teaching the right things. So things like never end a sentence with a preposition tacked on or ain't isn't a word are some of the shining stars of this particular variety of grammar, grammar four. Grammar five then is stylistic grammar, often called rhetorical grammar. So this is grammar to accomplish some specific end that you probably couldn't accomplish using another variety of grammar. So poetic grammars are a great example, as are things like meme languages. So um, saying something like he small smell spelled with a S M O L to refer to dogs on like little dogs online. And increasingly like that's happening more and more in spoken language as well. So the question then becomes like, why do we even need to know this? Why do we need to know that there are five grammars? Why do we need to know that there are differences between those five? And it's because since we know from grammar one that language just is, and that lingu linguists are building our understanding of it in, in grammar two, they've built up some ways of seeing language as dictated how by how it just is in the world. We see it, then we describe it. Then we continue to live our lives seeing and describing more grammatical phenomena. So at no point did we actually judge its worthiness. We just saw it, we observed it, and then we described it. That's because the grammar linguists use is called descriptive grammar. So there is an alternative to descriptive grammar, and that's called prescriptive grammar. That means you, you is doing lots of judging. Like, in fact, you're not just judging, but you're attempting to actually dictate grammar from the, quote, top down. There are lots of problems with this, primarily that this most often flies in the face of every fact about how language actually functions, if these prescriptions, and it doesn't really mean anything. So like you can say whatever you want, but if you're not backing that by some kind of force, nobody's going to listen to you, nobody's going to follow you. So the only successful prescriptive grammars are those that are backed by force. This prescriptive approach creates tension between the way language actually is and the way that the person who has the power of force personally wants it to be. And that leads to conflicts like the ones at the beginning of this podcast. And if we're prescribing grammar in the first place, like who gets to do the prescribing? The very notion of prescriptive grammar creates an in and an out group, and it creates this entire idea of bad grammar that doesn't really exist linguistically. But why is having bad grammar so bad? We need to have standards in language, right? Right? Well, if you look back at the other, other article we're going to do a little bit of looking at, um, you might kind of see where we're, we're going next. So Laura Greenfield in the standard language fairy tale tackles the idea of a standard language, beginning with five truisms about language that essentially every single linguist takes as a given. So this is that grammar two that we're talking about. And these are some of those systematic rules that we have talked about that linguists have gathered over time from observation. So number one, all spoken language changes over time. Number two, all spoken languages are equal in linguistic terms. Number three, grammaticality and communicative effectiveness are distinct and interdependent and independent, 
apologize, independent issues. Number four, written language and spoken language are historically, structurally, and fundamentally different creatures. And number five, variation is intrinsic to all spoken language at every level. So let's assume that all these things are true because, you know, they are. Um, so where do we go from there? Our grammar police might dispute these things, but as Greenfield notes through the, the words of linguist Lippy Green, the least disputed issues around language structure and function, the ones linguists argue about the least, are those which are most often challenged by non-linguists and with the greatest vehemence and emotion. The takeaway from these truisms is that either there must be no standard or that standard is way more flexible than the employees who won't hire anyone that will mix up their itses would like to believe. If something changes over time and has variation intrinsic to every level, that's not something that's going to stay stable for very long, if ever. Prescriptivism is the attempt to stabilize that murky area of language, but around what? Prescriptivist tendencies almost never hold stable around linguistic lines, but they do hold very perfectly along other lines. An example. There's a particular phenomenon in speech called Rlessness. It's like when JFK, one of the most famous Rless New Englanders, would pronounce collar as kala and dollar as dollar. It's portrayed in movies from the era, and of course, no one thought of the artlessness of JFK's speech or the famous actors as saying darling to be somehow substandard. In fact, quite the contrary, it's portrayed as classy. But the same artlessness in cocky, Cockney English, so that old Elo Govna, used to mock British English occasionally, is seen as somehow substandard. JFK would have pronounced water like wada. So would a speaker of Cockney English. But even more interesting, the, quote, Queen's English in Britain is also Arliss and is seen as the standard by which all British English is measured. And yet, Cockney is derided. So what the heck is going on here? Is Arlessness standard or is it not standard? The truth is, it's both because it's not about grammar. But wait, I hear you saying, you promised me that this was going to be about grammar. Well, it kind of is. And we noticed from those initial examples early on, this is really about power and authority and their associations with grammar. What is considered standard varies drastically in linguistic terms, but varies almost none in terms of who holds the power and who does not. Grammar encodes certain identity markers, in this case, perceived social class. We feel that JFK is speaking correct English and a Cockney Brit is speaking incorrect English. But that's just not true in linguistic terms. They're speaking English, and English is, like any language, subject to change and variation across different groups. It's the association with those groups that causes the discomfort, not the grammar. As another really powerful example, we can turn to Victoria Purcell Gates' work, as soon as she opened her mouth, issues of language, literacy, and power. In this article, Gates follows a boy, who she gives the pseudonym Donnie, and his mother as he struggles to learn to read in the Appalachian school system. 
He tries. His mother tries. But he keeps falling short, grade after grade. There are lots of reasons for this that we're not going to get into because they really don't have anything to do with their effort and they don't really have a whole lot to do with what we're talking about today. We can get to that on a later date. But what's important here is that a teacher, after Gates mentioned Donnie's mother in conversation, volunteered that, quote, as soon as she opened her mouth, I knew she was ignorant. As soon as she opened her mouth... How could anyone know that much about someone so quickly? Well, they can't. But then why did the language have such a negative feel for this teacher? It's that it's the people that language variety is associated with. The teacher has a university education, and Donnie's mother is illiterate and not formally educated to the same degree. Grammar didn't create the feeling. It just revealed it. Language differences can communicate markers like social class, race, ethnicity, education, and more. And that over-the-top negative reaction are to those markers, not to grammar. So what are these prescriptivists so afraid of? Why is recognizing language change and variation and just simply letting it be such a spooky concept? Well, because that jeopardizes places of power and authority these people hold. We see this keenly when the employer cuts off their vice president, who says, there is new people you should meet, to correct her. There was no failure to communicate. Everybody got it. But he'll be damned if he wants his company to be seen in the way that those people who talk like that. And he'll be damned if he's going to let his employees speak in the way the words naturally come out of their mouth. In this case, the people who this man afraid of being associated with fit some of those characteristics. For instance, the use of is in this context comes from Black English and certain varieties of Appalachian or Southern English. Peppering in the word like as a filler rather than um or a is common among young women. This man would probably never identify somebody who harbors resentment against these populations, but these reactions to language identified with these groups remains a fact. The good news is that he admits he's losing the battle. Well, considering that language change and variation are simply truths of how language works, he never really had a chance, and it's kind of dumb that he's waging the battle in the first place. It can be scary, sure, but languages are going to change, whether he wants them to or not. If I were you, I'd embrace that change rather than trying to sweep it under your bed, or it will haunt you for the rest of your life. If you're an educator, employer, or even a student, knowing this changes things that these grammatical differences are not based on right and wrong, but on place, circumstance, and identity, and that cringe you might feel when your students write that they weren't nowhere important is a reactionary attempt to hold on to your power, you can judge more effectively how you should react. Is your purpose here to reassert power power dynamics or to rearrange them? Now that you know, you can decide.